Anchored is a production of the Classic Learning Test, based in Annapolis, Maryland, reconnecting knowledge and virtue through meaningful assessments. Visit us at cltexam.com slash get started. Good afternoon. Welcome back to the Anchor Podcast. We have an exciting guest today, Dr. Philip Donnelly, professor at Baylor University and the author of The Lost Seeds of Learning. Uh, Philip, uh, welcome to the Anchor Podcast. Thank you. It's great to be here. So I, I am immersed. I'm halfway through The Lost Seeds of Learning, and I understand it's going to be one of, of four volumes that comes out. Uh, so all kinds of questions. Uh, before we get into the Lost Seeds of Learning, uh, this book that's really making the rounds right now in the classical world, I'd love to, to start off, if we could, uh, with your own academic formation and how you became interested in the great questions of life, how you became interested in philosophy. Sure. I had a pretty standard K through 12 public school education in, in Western Canada. I did have those sort of early childhood provocations to the love of wisdom that come through, you know, near-death experiences as a five-year-old that make you reflect on, you know, well, life's been short kind of feeling. But beyond that, I would say the turning point in my high school education was when uh, I took a Brit Lit survey class in which uh, a teacher, I don't think either of us realized what was happening at the time, but he was introducing me to historical theology by teaching me Beowulf. And uh, I realized that there were these people who were talking about these biblical stories in a way that I'd never heard anybody quite talk about these biblical stories before. And it also raised questions about literary form in relationship to biblical revelation as well. So I, I think at that point, I began asking questions that I re- recognized later as questions of historical theology, as well as questions of what difference does literary form make to things like divine revelation? Like, why isn't divine revelation in the form of a systematic theology text, right? Why, mm. it, for, for some people, it would sure <laughs> seem to make more sense, right? But why, why is that? In fact, across all traditions, divine revelation tends to not take the form of systematic theology text, right? So why, what, what's embedded in that, the questions of literary form? Mm-hmm. Um, and that led me to questions of hermeneutics. And were you, were you growing up in a Christian home? Yes, yes. I grew up in a Christian home uh, in, in the interior of British Columbia. That was sort of the, the context in which, which I grew up. And I had a, some really great undergraduate teachers who introduced me to the work of people like George Parkin Grant, who is a Canadian uh, political philosopher, wrote books on technology and justice, as well as English-speaking justice. And that was, in some ways, the beginning of my introduction to what I came to recognize later is the Western intellectual tradition. And I began to triangulate among various courses that, oh, there is this thing that I, I should I should come to terms with here, and and I began to lay out you know what and sort of what, what education a person should have. This was around sophomore level of college, and I realized, in retrospect, I realized that what I was designing was a, a great books curriculum that you know at that point mm. really didn't exist. You're putting this together on your own, kind of what what books would a really truly educated person be familiar mm-hmm. with? And just trying to read the major works in each of the uh, cultures across the tradition, saying well what sort of after reading, you know, the Hebrew Bible, what sort of Greek text would you need? What sort of Roman text would you need? You know, and then working your way up through the, the Western tradition. So you're, you're kind of peeling back the layers of the onion and, and, and discovering, oh, wow, there's this whole whole tradition. And yeah. how is this connected to kind of your actual academic journey? So you, where do you do your undergrad degree? Well, 
So I did my undergrad degree, especially through the University of British Columbia, but I did a lot of it through a local junior college in the interior of BC. And then I did my uh, graduate work at the University of Ottawa. And I worked with Nicholas von Maltzen and uh, David Jeffrey, two very distinguished scholars at the University of Ottawa. I ended up working as a Miltonist and been trained in Renaissance literature. And what happened was I realized working in Renaissance literature, that all these people seemed to share in common, all these authors I was studying shared a, a common background in grammar, logic, and rhetoric. And that mm. was part of the fabric of the the education that they'd all been given. And then I subsequently, after working as a professor for a few years, I encountered these people who were interested in grammar, logic, and rhetoric and its place in contemporary education. And I realized that there was a something of a disconnect in terms of people we're, we're in some sense asking as if for the first time, well, what happens if you read Aristotle's rhetoric, but you have a Christian understanding of the human person? How do you put those together? Mm. And it turns out a version of that question has been asked every hundred years or so in, in, and answered in, in a book form in the, in the tradition, starting with Augustine's De Doctrina Christiana, including a Hugh of St. Victor's Didiscalicon or a John of Salisbury's Metalogicon or uh, you know, Juan Vives or Erasmus, people have been answering versions of this question throughout the tradition. And so I, I, in writing, again, The Lost Seeds of Learning, I thought, well, what would it be like to take, in a sense, an Augustinian account of the Christian understanding of the human person and the character of reality and, and think through the character of grammar, logic, and rhetoric in light of that Christian understanding of the incarnation? primarily guided by an Okay, and then take us into the, the current context uh, in terms of the history of philosophy and, and the conversation around the connection between language uh, and reality. It, it seems that there's, among just kind of mainstream folks that are not in the academy, not in higher ed, that there is now kind of a, a question if there is a, a connection between language and reality. It seems like this idea has kind of seeped out of the university into kind of mainstream culture and has actually given birth to of a widespread nihilism in some ways. Is that fair? Yeah, I would say that that, that has become widely adopted as a position that the, the assumption that that there's a fundamental disconnection between words and reality rather than an analogical relationship. There's a step in between we're missing there, which is to say, you could say there's other versions of this which tend to presume, in a sense, too much. And this is the, the, the setting up for the critique of a kind of enlightenment, kind of rationalism, or a view that, that in a sense, believes that, that there's simply a one-to-one correspondence between our words and reality, and that you can just, you just say the thing, and, and that, that is the, that's the name. I mean what I mean, and that's, what, that's it, right? Ra- rather than recognizing that there is, in fact, an analogy, there's an analogical relationship between our words and reality, that they do have a relationship, and it's not a complete disconnect, uh, but uh, and it, it's, it's specifically that I would say in the tradition, there's a back and forth between people who, who want to say, and I guess this is not a modern thing. There's ancient versions of this. People who want to say that there's a complete disconnect between language and reality, and, and reality is fundamentally, in a sense, unknowable, but we, have, we just tell our stories, and it's simply a function of either our social or individual projections that, that language does what it does. On the one hand, and then there's other people who say, "Oh no, it's it's transparent. You can just go right from our words to reality, yeah. and it's all good." And and I believe that the incarnation provides a chastening of both what I call the presumption and the despair, 
right? That uh, about what language can do, right? That is to yeah. say, human language in light of the incarnation recognizes that we as human speakers are finite to begin with, but then also there's the effects of the fall, uh, which are not the same thing, uh, but they, they're connected. And sometimes we suffer from limitations due to the, the finitude. Sometimes we suffer from limitations due to the fall. But in both cases, the fact is that the infinite difference between reality and us as creatures has been crossed in the incarnation. And, and that's what gives us hope. Well, t- just- talk to me about the, the concept of seeds. I've never thought about seeds so much as the first 50 pages or so of your book. And they're really miraculous. You, you have all of this embedded. Talk us through kind of your thought process of, of thinking through the concept of seeds. Yeah. So the, the image that I develop and, and I'm trying to unfold is simply the biblical image that, that words, human words, and hence our understanding of words is, is like a seed and not simply reducible to a, a tool. Now, I should clarify, I'm not opposed to tools. I think actually the tool metaphor works sometimes and it's important to have. And it's a very ancient Aristotelian pedigree in terms of using that image. And that it's great as long as you understand it as purpose of tools. But when you get to seeds, I think it includes important elements that the tool does not, which is to say it un- includes this notion that what we communicate through words can, in a sense, uh, communicate a truth that doesn't originate with us, all right? That in, in the same way that the life that's communicated through a seed doesn't originate with the seed, it's the, the seed has been given its life and it communicates that life. And it's that historical character or genealogical character of, of the, the seed uh, that is the first characteristic I think is important. The other is the element of the, the fact that it's, it involves a kind of destruction of the seed, which is that's its cruciform character. It's self-giving that in order to give the life, there is this, this risk of it actually not, not germinating, right? The point is that the seed has to, in, sa- in fact, die in order to communicate life. And, and that's the, what I call the cruciform character of it. But there's also the fact that the ends of the seed are not simply chosen by us. They're not projected and that the ends could in fact be of non-human making, right? That's the other function. Rather than thinking of, of language as simply always reducible to instrumental human purposes, that there are in fact ways in which language enables us to cooperate with purposes that are more than human. So, so go, go to this. So, so the idea that the, the language are not of, of kind of human origin and, and this, this, I mean, a, a tool in some ways is radically different than a seed. I mean, tools don't change in some ways. I mean, if you put a hammer or a screwdriver somewhere, it shouldn't change, but a, a seed is going to, as you said, die. It has this cruciform nature to it and then, and then give life. But yeah, t- talk to us more about kind of the, the divine origins of this. Well, it's it's the idea that it's a gift, which is to back it up all the way. It has to do with the Christian understanding of, of creation as a gift that comes through the divine word, right? So it's through the word that creation comes into being. It's like God speaks creation into being. And so there's a way in which that, that dynamic, the priority of gift that we don't actually, you know, we're not the the originators of of that's of a gift. That's what a gift is. It's something that you receive, right? We are called to share that 
but we're again, it's not doesn't have its source in us. And again, the paradox, right, is that it really is given in the sense that the biggest mystery is why is there anything that's not God, right? How does that even happen, right? And and that that's because of the the triune character of reality, right? That's so that's. The, I think our audience would be hearing about it, and you may have have insight. And, and I haven't read this in the book, and you may get there. And again, I'm, I'm about halfway through right now. Uh, but there's kind of a war on grammar in some ways within mainstream hmm. education. The last year, my wife and I had our kids in the public school setting. They said it back to school night. Yeah, you know, grammar is no longer a serious part of the curriculum, or there's not an emphasis in grammar anymore. And, and the teacher told my wife and I, you know, I think this is crazy. We're, I, I'm still going to do it, even though I'm not supposed to. I've been teaching for 30 years. So there's this shift away from, where does that shift away from grammar come yeah. from? What does it signify? Is it connected to something deeper? Yes. I think it signifies a recognition that there's a limitation on what direct instruction in grammar can do for you. So going back to the definition, I argue that grammar is knowledge of causes regarding how to make faithful and appropriate renderings of reality with words. And you can acquire that skill indirectly or directly. And, and there, there's, there's a debate about the extent to which, you know, to what extent is, is someone telling you about the parts of speech going to, going to help you actually be more effective in your speaking, right? And, and to what extent is it better just to read a bunch of really interesting and engaging books that use language well and, and you internalize that dynamic, right? That's, I think there's a, a substantive debate there. And I actually come full circle in the last chapter uh, when I talk about the role of Latin in actually enabling that second order reflection on language. I think there's a legitimate issue here insofar as trying to learn to think self-reflectively about English language using English is like trying to poke your own eye out to get a better look at it. (laughs) And so that's why, in fact, it's better to look in a mirror and the mirror is not you. It's a reflection. It bears some relationship, but you wouldn't want to confuse, you know, the picture or the image with the reality. But in terms of languages, using one language to talk about another is a very helpful way of developing a kind of self-reflection regarding your own language. And that's a kind of a, a natural side effect of doing something like teaching Latin, for example. There, there's a legitimate good that comes through self-reflection on your own language. And that's, a, that's really important. That's more than fluency. It, it actually enables you to be more than just the victim of other people's propaganda, right? Enables you to reflect on how language is being used in that second order way. And I think that's, that's really the, the benefit of, of grammar that comes from that so, training. Whereas if you're just saying, well, we just want people to be effective in their use of language and be able to read and decode in some ways, just getting practice with reading stuff, uh, reading, you know, reading good books can, can have that effect in terms of fluency. So let me ask you this, you know, a lot of the folks listening to this, heads of schools, academic deans, and, and they're talking to parents who you know maybe haven't spent a whole lot of time thinking about concepts uh, like language, the value uh, of Latin, the value of grammar. What do you recommend? You know, when when a head of school is talking to a parent about you know their their kid does just does not want to do this Latin requirement and it seems mm-hmm. so pointless. Why do we have to do this? Uh, how do you make that case? I mean, the, the argument against it has been simply it's just not practical. It's a it's a, it's a dead language. 
uh, one of the arguments for it, I think, is just like the actual, you see people who ha- have been trained in Latin are different kinds of people. Qualitatively, they seem to be detail-oriented. They seem to be observant. Yeah, I'd love some insight yeah. there. Yeah, this is going to the the heart of the chapter seven of the book, which really argues that there's two main benefits of studying Latin. One benefit is like a tool, a good tool, insofar as it's like most ancient languages, insofar as it's based on translation, and it's going to re- introduce you to this second order reflection on your own language. And even if you forget most of what you learn, you're going to have the memory of that experience of reflecting on your own language in a way that you would never have done if you hadn't had that experience of having to translate and say, okay, there's six uh, English words I could use to translate this one Latin word. You know, four of them aren't really viable. Two of them are viable, but one of them is maybe better. And how would I decide? You do that thousands of times and you have a self-reflective kind of experience of your own language that you wouldn't get any other way. The other though the second part of the argument though is that you really need students to go from learning latin to reading latin in order to learn that is they need to be able to find ways to in fact recognize how their ability to to read a latin text and its original contributes to their learning in the present and uh and for a lot of schools this doesn't happen uh in some places it does uh but uh, for example, I mean, if you're teaching physics and you've got a room full of students who can read Latin in order to learn, you can take them to a Latin passage in the Latin, Newton's Principia Mathematica, and you can mm. walk them through and say, okay, here's in English, what's missing when you go from the Latin to the English? And they'll realize, oh, my qualitative understanding of that is different. So the main practical benefit is it provides training and in intellectual leadership for any discipline that has a history before 1900, right? So uh, say you're interested in, you know, metallurgy, right? Or uh, or accounting or banking or yeast making, right? Or yeast growing. There's uh, a history in Latin of reflection on practices and understandings that you can't in large part access unless you have some access to Latin. Also, even if you have translated text, your ability to evaluate those translations will depend on your knowledge of Latin. This is a really interesting point. It struck me a few years ago. I was reading a biography on Jefferson and early 1790s, I guess. He, he so seamlessly moves into French culture and he's, he's, he's speaking French fluently within a few few months. And I'm like, how was he just a genius? And then it occurred to me, no, he actually would have learned French history by reading French text. And that that at some point stopped happening. And, and so the point that you're making is we don't just learn Latin to learn Latin, but we're, we're, we're learning everything else, you know, through this in the, in the original language. That's a key distinction. Phil, when did, when did we stop learning, you know, French history and, and other languages through an immersion into the language itself? Well, it's partly an American thing, right? I mean, having large monoculture. I mean, in, in Europe, it's much more common, right, for people to have at least two or three languages. So it's partly just our, our cultural context. And I, I've pondered this in a variety of ways. And I, I really think there's a, there's a lot of work that needs to be done yet on that question of how to actually enable, say, for example, you know, a genuinely, you know, bilingual classical curriculum to function in our contemporary culture. I, I think it can be done. I should also just say in terms of just practicality here with respect to Latin in particular, 
there's a way in which if you're going to understand the testimonies of the past that make present knowledge possible, you need to know Latin, right? Mm. And that's the, to the, and so it's, it's because we live in the modern world that we need to learn Latin, right? That's the thing. It's nothing to do with antiquity in the sense that it has obviously an ancient past, but it's because the Latin tradition continues into the present. Uh, and of course, this is residually apparent when people talk about, you know, vocabulary for, for medicine or for, for, for legal practices. But in fact, all the academic disciplines have their roots in, in Latin discourses. And if you're going to actually know any more than the last 25 minutes of scholarly discussion and engage it directly, you need to have some ability to access the Latin texts. So it's, it's really to do with the present that you need to study Latin. The, the testimonies that make present knowledge possible. But I think your, your larger question about, you know, when did this happen? I think part of the issue is, is a particularly kind of American situation or North American context where, for example, in Quebec, a lot of people, in fact, are bilingual because they have to be, right? They're French first and they have to learn English, right? So they're, they're bilingual. Whereas if you live in a monoglot culture where I grew up in Western Canada, Typically, you didn't have to. There wasn't that external compulsion. So I think there's a way in which if you really want to become bilingual, put yourself in situations where you have to, and then you do. So let's talk Baylor for a couple of minutes here. Yeah. You've been at the Honors College of Baylor for 20 years. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah. This is a popular, popular destination for CLT test takers. Tell us a little bit about the Honors College of Baylor, if you would, for folks who yeah. haven't heard uh, heard about it at all. The Honors College at, at Baylor University is distinctive in that there are many places in the U.S. where you can get a, a Christian liberal arts education. And there are many Christian places in the U.S. where you can get trained at a, at a research one institution, a comprehensive research university. But Baylor is distinctive and the Honors College is distinctive at Baylor in that it's the only place that I know where you can get the, the formational benefits of a Christian liberal arts education in the context of a comprehensive research university. This means that you get the benefits of being apprenticed by scholars, but then those scholars, in fact, are world-class scholars who are contributing to their disciplines uh, across the board, whether it be in the sciences or the humanities um, or the social sciences. You have access to world-class scholars who are on the front edge of their discipline, but you also get that formational benefit of a, a Christian liberal arts education in the context of a, the Honors College. So that would be the, the distinctive thing that I've, I've found and I've, I've witnessed over the years here at Baylor. It's gone in very fast. And, uh, and we're, we're big fans here at CLT of, of the Dean of your Honors College, Dr. Doug, Doug Henry. He's been a great friend. He's on our academic board at CLT and grateful to be working with Baylor. Final question. We always end the Anchor Pod by asking our guests that the book that maybe you reread every year, the book that's been most formative for you, what would that be? Well, I would say if you were to ask my children about their their father, they would definitely say the Republic because they, they think their, their father has a neurological disorder where you can go from any scene in life or fiction and point to the corresponding uh -huh. scene in Plato's Republic. So uh -huh. uh, that would be the, that would be the text. Love it. Love it. Yeah. Bill, thanks so much for being on again. The book is The Lost Seeds of Learning. I love it. I, tell us, when we should have asked this already, but but there's three following this. Is that right? Yes. Yes. So this this first volume was to kind of cast the vision, 
regarding the theological transformation of grammar, logic, and rhetoric. The subsequent volumes go into more detail in interpreting specific texts in the tradition. So the grammar volume will present a reading of Bonaventure's Retracing the Arts to Theology, as well as some Hugh of St. Victor. That'll be focused on grammar. The logic volume will focus on Anselm, but we'll look at the theological transformation of, of logic. And then the uh, final volume on rhetoric will will also present a reading of Augustine's Confessions. So that's the, the goal. And I should also say, in the meantime, I am happy to to visit with faculty from across uh, the grades, different grade levels, and think out loud together with them about what this project implies for their classroom practice. And that's one of the things I enjoy doing most. And it would help even as I'm working on this, this, these subsequent volumes to be able to have conversations with faculty in the classroom about what this looks like in practice. So again, we're here with Dr. Philip Donnelly, professor at the Honors College of Baylor University. Philip, come back uh, and join us again in the future. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Take care. Thanks for listening to this episode of Anchored. If you enjoyed it, please be sure to leave a rating or review on your podcast platform of choice. And remember to subscribe and share with your friends and colleagues. Thanks for joining us and we'll see you next time.